Trinity Baptist Church when we were studying here at Southwestern, uh, or SWOSU, Southwestern Oklahoma State University. Um, and I was actually for a few of those years, at least two, two and a half, three maybe, um, was the youth leader um, when the church was still meeting uh, over there in a, a different bu building. And Becca was um, in our youth group. And I would say that her and Shannon were like our first youth. Um, they were um, the ones who were there at the very first meeting when we kind of rebooted uh, the youth ministry back, back in those days. Um, but then, of course, God has brought uh, or taken Brandy and I on quite the journey from um, classmates um, in third grade at Sentinel High School through Weatherford um, and through Oklahoma City, through Fort Worth, Texas, and now we've been living in Russia for, for 12 years. And, um, no, I don't uh, take lightly being behind this pulpit uh, because I see how faithfully your pastor preaches the word of God and and uh, he is a man of, of, uh, of like-mindedness to me. And so I pray that today the, the sermon will be challenging to you. But I do warn you, in Russian Bible Church, we meet for two hours. So buckle up, because we're going to dig into this text. I, I, I won't preach for two hours, but, but um, you guys, um, I understand that that we came here for a reason, and that is to read and to study the Word of God and to know, uh, get to know God. So um, if you would, join me in opening your Bible to, to the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3, verse 7. Mark, chapter 3, verse 7. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have the boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for your word. And God, as I have returned to this text, thought through this text, it has truly been like honey on my lips, bringing life and energy to my soul and strengthening my hands. And God, I, I pray that that today I would just be an instrument in, in your hands. 
that you would use me to open up your word today to, to help this church understand the word, to help perhaps guests see your glory through for the first time through this word. And God, I, I, I pray, Lord, um, that we would find ways together today to apply it, to take this word back into our homes, into our workplaces, and into our community. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask you a question. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Brandy and I used to live among a people group, an ethnic minority native to Russia uh, called the Udmort. And we lived among them for, for eight years. And we moved there specifically with the desire to, to work with a missionary team to plant a church among them. Now, 55% of the Udmurt would, would claim to be Eastern Orthodox Christian or Russian Orthodox Christian. But the other 45% would claim that they were pagans or they, they practiced animism, so worshiping various kinds of spirits. And in the summer of 2010, uh, it was our second year to be living in the city of Izhevsk, in the Republic of Udmurtia in Russia. There was a fairly, uh, a fairly severe drought. Uh, across pretty much the, the entire country. Um, and during that time, I, I was in a village, and I was, I was meeting and speaking to just uh, some, some local Udmort people uh, because we were working as a team on a project of distributing the Bible into their language for the first time. So we were trying to get contacts and ideas of, of to whom we could turn to distribute the, that, 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 uh, the Bible in the Udmort language. And I, I was talking to a, a group of women who, who worked in the, the local library, and, and they were giving us, a, a, me and my, my teammates, a, a, a small tour of their, of their village. There wasn't much to see um, but some cows and chickens um, and their library. Um, reminded me of my hometown of Sentinel. It was good people and a small community, that, and everyone knew everyone and everything that you were doing. Um, but I, as we were talking... Um, I, I asked them, do you believe in God? And of course, I knew the answer because not a single time in Udmurtia, when I, when I asked the question, do you believe in God, did someone say no? Because the Udmurt were very religious, very superstitious people, and they believed in a higher power without a doubt. And they said, yes, yes, all of the women, they said yes, and they, they pulled out a, a cross out of, that was tucked into their, to, to their shirt. They pulled out a cross necklace, and, which was the sign that they'd been baptized as an infant into the Orthodox Church. And they said, yes, yes, we, we are Christians. And I said, oh, okay, so, so you believe in Jesus Christ. And of course, they agreed. And after talking for a while, and after walking for a while, I, I asked, so I know that you're, you're in your village, you depend on rain for your gardens. They were very much sustenance farmers in many ways in, in the Udmurt villages. And I said, so what will you do since there's a drought and, and you're not going to get the harvest like you normally do? And they said, well, of course, we asked the, the priest in the, the town near, nearby in the county seat, we asked the priest to come and pray. So we waited three days and nothing happened. And then naturally we, we sacrificed a lamb. Self-proclaimed Christians bringing animal sacrifices 
to appease the spirits. Of course, this is a vivid illustration of, of a contrast to, to biblical Christianity, but honestly, similar, similar parallels could be made out of people right here, right here in maybe this church, right here in our community. Self-proclaimed Christians whose worldview doesn't differ at all from the culture around them. How they live, how they use their time, how they use their money, what their personal goals and ambitions are. In many ways, self-proclaimed Christians just reflect the culture of the Bible Belt, the culture of Weatherford, Oklahoma, and not God's Word. So I want to ask you again, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? Many people misunderstand how they should approach Jesus. In today's story, we, we see three different groups of people that are approaching Jesus. And they all, in one way or another, believe in Jesus Christ. In one way or another, they believe in Jesus. But they all have different motivations. They all have different reasons for coming to him. So in verse 7, verses 7 through 10, the first group that we see is, is a group of people who come to Jesus to exploit him. In verse 7, Mark says that a great crowd followed Jesus. So after awesome displays of healings, exorcisms, and wisdom and teachings, wisdom and teaching, Jesus' popularity was just soaring. But Jesus wasn't just like a, a local celebrity for the Jews in Judea, as if this was some kind of local cult following. People were coming from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And these areas were essentially Jewish territories. But beyond that, people were coming from Idumea and the Transjordan. And these were, were mixed Jewish-Gentile areas. And then from even beyond that, people were coming from Tyre and Sidon. And they were largely, if not completely, Gentile regions. Like Isaiah the prophet predicted, Mark's description of Jesus' geographical influence portrays him as a light to the nations. However, notice why they were coming. Verse 8 says, they heard all that he was doing. Then verse 10 says, they came for he had healed many. You see, these crowds were not coming because they believed in him as the Messiah. They were not coming to hear his teaching on the kingdom of God or to know him. The crowd came to Jesus in pursuit of his healing powers. And they were so irrationally overcome by, his, by their personal aspirations that they were willing to trample him to death to get to his power. The hysteria of the great crowd turned them into an angry mob. And that's why the disciples had to have a boat ready. They had to keep the crowd from abusing the Son of God. The crowd saw Jesus as a means to an end, fulfilling their, their momentary physical wants and desires, and not as the Lord to whom they would submit. They were ready just to use him and walk away. Currently, the fastest form of so-called Christianity around the globe consists of similar crowds. 
And by the way, it is the fastest form of evangelical Christianity in Russia as well. What is known as the prosperity gospel teaches that if you have a certain quality of faith, then Jesus will give you health, wealth, success, happiness, and answer all of your prayers. He will give you the desires of your heart. And this teaching claims that those things are the signs of God's blessing. So naturally, if you don't have these things, it means that you don't have enough faith or that your faith isn't strong enough and that God's blessing is not upon you. You are unacceptable to God. Another name for this movement is called the Word of Faith Movement. And this teaching doesn't understand faith as knowing and trusting in the sovereign God. The the layman's term is sometimes the name it, claim it movement. And they're not teaching you to know and to trust God. They understand faith as a positive mental attitude conjured up by the will of man as a means to gain comfort. And you, you can just control and wield that positive mental attitude without having doubts. Then God is obligated to give you what you desire. And it portrays Jesus as a weak God, not to be submitted to, but to be used as a, a source of power for personal benefit. And friends, for eight years, I lived among pagans. I lived among animists. And this teaching is in no way different than the animism of the Udmort people or to the African tribal religions in the global south. Preachers of the prosperity gospel deceive the crowds with a false message. And these crowds are abusing the name of Jesus in pursuit of worldly desires. They misdiagnose our greatest problem, sin and separation from God, and fail to identify and address our greatest need. This so-called gospel is powerless to save us as it diverts our attention from the glory of God to human inventions and temporary blessings. In this text, the crowds had missed the true purpose of Jesus the Messiah. Therefore, they missed the gospel. Guys, we, we cannot forget who Jesus is. When we open up His Word, when we gather claiming to be the church, when we sing praises to His name, we cannot forget whom we are dealing with. Jesus is the great I Am. He is the Son of David, the Son of God, the Son of Man executing judgment. The Alpha, the Omega, the author of life, the true and mighty God. Jesus does not exist for your comfort. We exist for His glory because He is the Chosen One, the Lawgiver, the King of the Jews, the King of Israel, the King of kings, and the King of the nations, the firstborn of all creation, the Lord of glory. Jesus is most glorified when us, you've heard it before, when no matter what, in sickness or in health, in abundance or in poverty, in happiness or in sorrow, Jesus is most glorified us when we are satisfied in Him. Because we believe that He is the Word of God. We believe that He is the Righteous One. We believe that He is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And He is the resurrection and life. 
Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior, and that is why we love him. What about you, friend? Did you come to Christianity? Did you come to this church today because you wanted Jesus? Because that you thought that by Jesus you could get something else. Money? A job? Status in the community? Nice friends? You may have, have want or, or even need of these things, but they are not your greatest need. They are not what you should be seeking in this place. You have to understand that we all experience pain. We all understand why these people would, would rush to Jesus in search of healing. We all understand what it means to feel hopeless and helpless. But you must understand that according to the Bible, that all of our pain, our suffering, our struggles are just symptoms of a deeper illness. That man is separated from God because of sin. Now what I'm not saying is that if you're sick, it's your fault because you, you lied to someone. Or because as a, as a kid, you, you, you stole a, a pack of cigarettes from the, the local grocery store or, or convenience store. What I'm saying is, we live in a fallen world. And in our fallen world, we are constant, constantly running up against to the effects of the fall of man. But what you need to understand is, you need his redemption. Therefore, by his grace, hear my words, by his grace, God permits us to see and experience pain and suffering. By his grace, God lets us become chronically ill. Now, what I'm not saying is Christianity is um, some sort of a group of, of masochists. We don't believe in asceticism that, that believes that by experiencing pain, you somehow uh, detach yourself from worldly desires, like, like in Buddhism. We don't look at suffering as a good thing. See, in the Bible, suffering, sickness, tragedy, they are all signs. And all these signs point to the fact that, that our world is broken. And they're pointing us to say, what's wrong here? And in moments like a pandemic, we all feel that the world needs restored. See, this should open our eyes. Our sicknesses, our struggles should open our eyes. And when we see and experience pain and suffering, we, our heart cries out that there just is something that doesn't feel right about this. So if you were laid off because a multi-million or billion dollar oil company saw you as being as more dis dispensable than some of their profits, I will tell you, according to the Bible... That is unjust. That is, that is not right. And God's not pleased by it. If you are chronically ill or handicapped, we don't rejoice in this. 
It's awful. And Jesus sympathizes. But he tells you that there's hope in him. You see, the Bible says that there will be a judgment day when he will correct all injustices. There will be a day when he gives everyone who believes in him a new body that will not break down or get sick. There will be a great day when he will restore everything. So friend, I encourage you, seek his redemption. Seek that day. This is all our hope. And you have a choice. You can come to Jesus trying to solve temporary problems and then leave. Or you can seek his eternal redemption and restoration and his joy eternal. Are you coming to Jesus to exploit him? Or are you coming to Jesus to worship him? Now there's a second group in this story that we see. And it's those who are coming to Jesus to oppose him. Look at verse 11. And verse 12. I'll read it. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Now, Mark records Jesus' encounters with unclean spirits. And, and it's absolutely fascinating to see how this story shows that these demons in some way or another, believe. Demons are believers. The epistle of James talks about that. And they even make here a, a doctrinally sound confession. They cry out, you are the son of God. Church, that's not bad theology. That's good theology. There are many so-called churches today who won't even proclaim that. Now, why did they shout this? Why were they screaming this? Some scholars conjecture that the reason why the demons called Jesus the Son of God is that they were trying to control him. And this idea is based on an ancient understanding of, of exorcism that, say, that says that if you know someone's name, then you can have power over them. And I'll be honest, uh, I fully disagree with this idea. Because Jesus did have power over them. This text does not portray a sense of, of dualism in which spirits are combat, combating Jesus, like as if there's a, a light side and a dark side, like in Star Wars or something, and they're battling it out. And we don't really know who's going to win. And sometimes Jesus is winning, sometimes the, the, the demons are winning, and we're just sitting on the edge of our seats to see how it comes to an end. No, this isn't dualism. There is no dualism in the Bible. There is no dualism in our universe. This is domination. These spirits are falling down and they, and they are crying out as if to say, whoa, whoa, you're the son of God? Jesus' authority over demonic realm is real and total. Other passages, the demons are actually coming to him and, and, and asking, is now the time that you've come to destroy us? Or do we have a little bit? Okay, the last part I added. No, he's, he's in full authority over these these unclean spirits. Demonic forces are left with no other choice than to confess his sovereignty by their subjection. Jesus did not fear his enemies, but they feared him because they know that unavoidable destruction awaits them. 
And you know what saddens me is how these powerful, these very, very powerful beings know their end and understand that they are helpless and hopeless before Jesus Christ. Yet there are people listening who just as greatly oppose Jesus Christ and His Word, yet pridefully and arrogantly think that they will be cleared on Judgment Day. But as I read this text, uh, I, I did ask myself uh, an interesting question. Maybe you're asking it too, so let's, let's go there. If it's true that, that Jesus can and will destroy Satan and his fallen angels, you might be asking, well, why does he even let them operate? And my answer is this, it's for his glory. Jesus has absolute authority to take away the power of Satan and evil spirits. But for now, he refrains from doing so in order to more greatly display his infinitely superior beauty and value to this world. What do I mean by that? So the beauty and value of Christ is apparent when people reject temptation to pursue worldly pleasures, when they reject that so that they may, be, they may more wholeheartedly enjoy the glory of God. And when Christians can do this, we show the world that Christ is infinitely better. When they see that you can perhaps live in a smaller house to free up finances to help the poor, to give to your church or to send missionaries to unreached people groups, they understand that there must be something about your understanding of Jesus that is better than theirs. We display that Christ is victorious. When we're able to reject the world and pursue Christ, we display that Christ is victorious and that Satan has absolutely no rule over us. So look at your lifestyle. Does it look like to an outsider that, that Satan is ruling over your life? Or have you been set free from worldly pleasures? In verse 12, you can look there. Jesus further displays his authority over them, over these evil spirits, unclean spirits, by ordering them to not make him known. And this is a little bit mind-blowing too, isn't it? I mean, isn't it good that people find out that Jesus is the Son of God? So why did he forbid them to speak about him? And I think, personally, I think there's two reasons. First, the obvious one is consider the timing. This was early in Jesus' ministry. He still had much teaching and preaching to do. He still had much to share with his disciples and prepare them for the spread of the gospel. And if the message that a man claiming to be the Son of God got out too fast to this broad of an audience, then his opponents might would try to hasten his death. But the authority of Christ over his enemies ensured that his death and resurrection occurred at absolutely the right time, at absolutely the God-ordained moment, in the fullness of time. And the second reason 
I believe that Christ is forbidding him is forbidding them is just consider the source. God's will is not for demons to carry the truth. God's will is for his image bearers to be the ambassadors of the gospel to the nations. He gave the task of proclamation not to unclean spirits, but to holy spirit filled to a holy spirit filled church starting with his apostles. And for this message to be spread by rebellious, vile, destructive, gospelless spirits would be an insult to the glory of Christ. Throughout Christian history, there have been many who verbally proclaim, like these demons, some sense of biblical truth, like Jesus is the Son of God. But they are rebellious, unclean, and gospelless. They do not have the Holy Spirit, but are filled with an unclean spirit. And Satan tries to use them to damage the credibility of our message. Generally speaking, these teachers, comp- these teachers proclaim one of two distortions of the gospel in order to oppose the truth about Jesus. The first distortion is moralism, sometimes called legalism. See, moralism declares that we should lead a holy life, observe religious customs for Jesus to accept us. If I walked an aisle, if I was baptized in water, if I go to church on Sundays, God is pleased. And those things maintain my status before him. The assurance of salvation lies not in God's sovereign hands, but in the hands of men. Moralism uses guilt and shame to control people. Now, the other distortion of the gospel is relativism. Relativism claims that Jesus forgives us, but we are not really obligated to strive towards holiness. I can live however I want and do whatever I want because God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be me. Relative, relativism makes people to be makes people out to be out to be so free that they aren't accountable to anyone, not even to God's word or his church. Both of these messages distort the true gospel. Friends, the gospel is the good news about how God brought about our salvation through Christ so that we could have a right relationship with him and live in the joy of his good and holy purpose. By his grace, Jesus sets you free to obey him. The gospel is not something we do. The gospel is something that has been done for us. And true faith in Jesus always changes our lives. So if you believe... um, Sorry, if you... If you're sitting here today and perhaps maybe you have some sort of skepticism about the church or doubts about Christianity because you saw hypocrisy in the lives of believers, friends, I encourage you just to open up the the New Testament. God hasn't hidden 
what his true church is supposed to look like. Test those who call themselves Christians with the scriptures. Church, test yourself today with the scriptures. And if a church doesn't match up, they likely have been deceived by a moralistic or relativistic version of Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see yourselves being inclined to or deceived by one of these false teachings? Don't allow yourself to be an instrument of Satan opposing or hindering others to see the beauty of Jesus in the gospel. Now finally, we get to this third group of people. The group that is so much different than the first two groups. They are those who come to Jesus to truly follow him. Let's read that. Verse 13. And he went up to the mountain and called to, to him those whom he desires, desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have the authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. The calling of the apostles was significant. This community, the twelve, we have to understand was more than just an elite social club or interest group. They don't resemble really anything of that sort. I mean, just, just look at the diversity. And honestly, think about yourself. Who, whom do you mostly feel drawn to hang out with? Probably pe people that are most likely, uh, most like you. If you like to fish, kind of find other fishermen. Go, go fishing together. If you're an OSU fan, kind of like to hang out with that OSU crowd right over here. If you're an OU, o, OU fan, probably were excommunicated from this church. But I had to get my sports joke in. You know, we're in western Oklahoma. No. We, we, we are drawn to people most like us. But that's not what Jesus was doing here. I mean, I mean look at the, these people. Look at the, the diversity of his disciples. Fisherman? A tax collector? A traitor to his nation? A zealot with violent political goals? Different backgrounds, people from different places. This group as a whole have little in common except Jesus' sovereign call. Something supernatural is happening here. And unfortunately, many um, English translations don't do justice to the significance of Jesus' call to the, to the twelve when they say that he appointed 12. So as opposed to the other Gospels, there's, there's a unique phrase here in the book of, or in the Gospel of Mark. So I'm going to nerd out with you guys for a second. So in the book of Mark, the proper translation would actually be, he made 12. So it's using the, the same verb that the, the Greek Old Testament would have used for Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God 
created the heavens and the earth, right? God made the heavens and the earth. See, that, that would be the, the proper translation here. And, and don't miss this. This is really important. So to appoint is to select from an existing lot and raise them to a new status. But to make, to create, means to bring into existence. The number 12 recalls the 12 tribes of Israel. And similar to the sons of Jacob, the apostles were a nucleus of a new nation. Jesus making 12 symbolized Jesus creating a new people of God, a diverse but indivisible unit who later became the church. And this people would be his chosen nation to bring salvation to all nations. In John 15, 16, Jesus reminds us, or reminds his disciples that he, said, he told them, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and your fruit should abide. God still uses the church, his chosen nation to continue what Jesus began with these disciples. And just as Jesus promised, their fruit abides. So with what was characteristic of the 12's ministry then continues to be characteristic of the church's ministry today. What was that? Jesus calls us to be with him, verse 14. Mark summarizes Jesus' recruitment of his disciples, saying that, that he called, him, called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, something interesting here is that this is completely countercultural in Jewish society. During this time, rabbis did not call disciples. Disciples chose their rabbis based upon their personal pr preference, similar to how students select a university today. Disciples saw their rabbi as a means to master the Torah, the Old Testament. But with Jesus, something different is happening. Jesus shows his authority to elect disciples. And for the most part, we see that these guys, they had already made their choice. They were already working in their trade. They were not seeking to follow some rabbi. But Jesus, but Jesus changed the direction of their lives with his election. And they joyfully follow him because Jesus became the desire of their heart. So in contrast to the explorers, the twelve did not see Jesus as a means to an end. Jesus was the end to be desired. Jesus' call was a call to himself. And let's think about it this way. I, I'm sure you've heard this before, but, but think about your call to Christ or, or the, your motivation for following Jesus. So what if you could live in a utopia for eternity? You'd have the home of your dreams. All your favorite friends and relatives were, were surrounding you. You get to eat your favorite food, drink your favorite drinks, and practice your favorite hobbies. And even your favorite sports teams were there. But Jesus wasn't. Would you want to be there? See, your answer reveals much about how you would truly feel about Jesus. Because heaven without Jesus is not heaven. 1 Peter 3.18 explains the gospel as the good news that Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to heaven. 
No, no, no. That's not what it says. That he might bring us to God. That's the good news. We get God. And if you ever understood that this is the true gospel, that we get God, then you've understood the true gospel. But if you've never understood it this way, if you thought that God was a means to just get something else, like something better is standing behind him, so you're going through him to get to that, I ask you to repent. Repent from your worldly pursuit. Repent from your false faith. Repent from your false conversion and believe in and love and savor knowing Jesus Christ. However, just like these disciples, one thing you understand is is in our relationship with Jesus, we also enter into a relationship with a community. It's not just me and Jesus. It's not just me and God. Yes, to some extent, God can be worshipped on a deer stand. Remember my barber here down Main Street would always try to convince me of that. But true worship happens in a community. God has called you to a community. This is our great honor as disciples of Jesus and members of the local church. We get to know him personally and corporately. And we don't just just hang out together. This community has been sent out with a task. The ministry of the twelve was primarily to carry a message. They were sent out with the purpose of preaching. And in contrast to the Jesus opposers, when the apostles said that Jesus is the Son of God, they weren't opposing Him. Instead, they were pushing back evil with their proclamation. And their message was accompanied by an authoritative power to cast out demons. Other times, the apostles were said to have the power to perform signs, wonders, and healings. Now, of course, you might be asking, are you, Ricky, why are you emphasizing that happening with the apostles? I mean, can't God still do miracles? Absolutely. You would have to be a fool to think that God could not still heal people, that God could not still cast out demons. But there was a difference in the apostles. They, they had a special anointing to, do, to perform these signs. Why? Because they were the stewards of the, with, of the message that Jesus had entrusted him, and they were called to found his church on that message. Look at Acts 14.3 if you're interested. I'll read that. It says, So they remained for a long time, speaking of some apostles, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So this was a very special time and a very special period of history when the church was being established. And God was approving the authority of that community by accompanying them with just an an enormous amount, a mind-blowing amount of signs and wonders. So yes, God does still do miracles. But we have to acknowledge, if we truly study the Scriptures, that there was something special about this period. And so if you don't get the healing that you've prayed for, it's not because of your lack of faith. Because our faith points you to a greater healing that's coming in the future, not just a temporary one. You see, God gave the apostles this special anointing, a special power as his authorized witnesses. This power would testify that their message, the message of the apostles was from the one true God and his plan of restoration had commenced. They showed that their God has authority to reverse all the effects of the fall of man. 
and their authority continues to be a testimony of the assurance of the message that your church is built on with Christ as its cornerstone. So if you ask, you know, so th- were, those, were those miracles meaningless? Absolutely not. Those miracles are the affirmation that you believed in the true gospel. Their miracles still work to this day. And his church continues to steward and carry that same apostolic message. However, along with our preaching, as we just flip through the the New Testament, there's a lot of expectations how we as the church should live. You see, we, we, we are called to serve others in the name of Jesus. We prove that the kingdom of heaven is near us in the church. So while maybe God didn't call you to cast out demons, maybe God doesn't allow you to pray over someone and cure them of cancer, He does still call you to push back the effects of the fall, to let people see His light, to give, the, to, to, to give them a taste of heaven on earth. We want for the church's ministry to show that we have the true apostolic message, the true gospel, because we know that where Jesus reigns, good happens, because his people do good. Jesus' nation will always wrestle with the effects of the fall. So don't live on this earth as if the benefits of the kingdom of heaven are only to be found in the future. He created a born-again community to live unlike any other community. He calls this community to do what no government, no king, no president could ever do for your community. So when your brother loses his job, what do citizens of the kingdom of God do? They get together and they say, come on, let's, let's buy his groceries. Let's pay his rent. Because members of the kingdom... Members of the kingdom of God shouldn't go without food and shelter. If your sister is sick, then we say, let's help her with her medical bills. Let's bring her meals. Because our sister should have the opportunity to be treated. Our sister shouldn't have to worry about what's on the stove for dinner. And I even believe that we should be willing to do the same for our unbelieving neighbors. That we would love our enemies that we would pray for those who persecute us and we would serve them. As people made in the image of God, we want to see them prosper. We want the hopeless to taste His kindness through our good works that they may repent and turn to our good God. And so in light of this text, in light of these kind of three groups of people, I, I just want to reflect back by offering a few exhortations. First, check your heart. You see, just because you are in this place doesn't mean that you are one of his true followers. The church has always had people among her who falsely profess Christ. I mean, just look at this story. Even beginning with the 12, this story ends with Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Friends, do you... Do you see Jesus as just a means to get to his stuff? To make your life more comfortable? Honestly, probably the, a good judge of this would be the content of your prayers. What do you pray about? Friends, has your attitude towards Jesus 
been one of opposition or does your life show that you submit to his will? Have you fully committed your life to being with him and making his glory known to the nations? If there's any doubt, I beg you to repent and believe in him today. And I know repent these days is a, a difficult and, and religious word, but, but the basic definition is turn away. But I kind of like to describe it this way. I remember when my daughter was born and me and Brandy were stuck in Budapest for, for almost two months, right, Brandy? Seven weeks, something like that, because of a visa issue. So she, my, our daughter was born in, in Budapest, and, but we had this little, little like hotel room we were able to stay at, and I remember sitting her down, and I was going to change her wet diaper, and I remember just looking at her, and she was beautiful and precious, and then she pooped all over me, and I turned away from her because it was projectile. Now, I'm sorry to use my daughter as the illustration of sin, but that's what true repentance is. The worldly things, those temptations, those worldly treasures, they at one point in your life captivated you. But when Christ opens your eyes and you see the glory of God in the gospel, they're repulsive and you turn and you run to Jesus because he becomes your treasure. That's what repentance is. Second exhortation, I want you to understand that Jesus is our first call to a relationship with Jesus. So be with Him. Seek to know Christ through the revelation of His Word that testifies about Him. Study it at home. You have that blessing. Study it in a community. Don't, and don't miss that opportunity to gather around this Word so that you may know Him and enjoy and savor Jesus Christ. And thirdly, never forget that part of your new identity in Christ is to make his glory known wherever you are. So preach Christ. There are so many good things that you could concentrate your energies on, but don't let any of them replace the word ministry to which you have been called. Joyfully share the good news. Joyfully share and proclaim the gospel. Joyfully share the great name of Jesus. And appeal to this world to be reconciled with God. Because friends, true followers of Jesus are called to be with him and to make him known. Let's pray. Father, you are so, so good. And God, I confess that it is so easy to pursue my own comforts more than I pursue you. I can, can confess that, that sometimes my flesh is so, so weak. That it's easier to, to turn on the television, turn on a TV show, a movie, versus disciplining my mind to know you, to look into your word, and to seek your glory. Oh God, but there's there's heavenly rewards in the in the latter. God, I, I know that we could look at these three groups of people and say, gosh, sometimes I I look like that group. 
Sometimes I look at like this group. Sometimes I look like the third. And God, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would convict us to, to whom we, we truly belong. And the fruits of our life, the, 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 the consistent fruits of our life will, will make that very clear. So God, I pray that you would give us discernment. God, I pray for Trinity Baptist Church and thank you that they have supported us for so many years in this ministry and just taking this same message that I was talking about today, just taking it to the nations. God, that they are a part of that. But God, I pray that they would not be content with our ministry in Moscow alone. That they would boldly take the gospel to their neighbors, many of whom oppose your glory. They would call them to repentance. God, that they would partner with others as they take the gospel to less reached areas of the United States in church planting and evangelism. God, that out of this congregation you would send more and more missionaries to unreached people groups and unengaged nations who don't have a gospel witness among them. God, multiply this church and may its ripple effects reach far beyond what we could ever ask for and imagine. Amen.